This is Asha Voices, I'm J.D. Gray. When a child is having difficulty eating, it can take a toll on the entire family. The effect is immense. It can create issues that affect the mind and body and spur feelings of guilt and shame in the parents. Our guests say pediatric feeding disorders affect approximately 3 to 4% of children and can require a team-based approach for treatment. Today on the podcast, we discuss the teamwork behind treating pediatric feeding disorder and speak with a team from Children's Wisconsin, a pediatric health center. The team shares the details of how they collaborate and the outcomes they achieve when they work together. Plus, what if you don't work in a hospital? We discuss collaborative care in a community-based setting. I'm J.D. Gray, and this is ASHA Voices. Support for ASHA Voices comes from ASHA's online conference, Controversies and Consensus in Dysphagia Management. This continuing education opportunity begins March 9th. Save $100 when you register by February 16th. Learn more at on.asha.org dysphagia22. On this episode of the podcast, we're welcoming an interprofessional team treating pediatric feeding disorder from Children's Wisconsin, a not-for-profit healthcare system affiliated with the Medical College of Wisconsin. In the first half of the episode, team members will discuss their individual roles. Then in the second half, we'll dive into the collaboration as they walk us through an example of what their treatment looks like in practice. Let's meet the team now. Andrea Bigatka is a pediatric psychologist. Mary Beth Fueling is a registered dietitian. Mindy Aldinger is a speech-language pathologist. And finally, Praveen Gaudet. I'm the physician on the team. And as you can see, we have four disciplines represented here, medicine, nutrition, psychology, and feeding skill. In our team, we have a speech and language pathologist, but in other teams, you may come across occupational therapists. And social workers also are part of the team sometimes, correct? Correct, as are nurses who form a day-to-day part of our team. Before we get into the specifics of the teamwork behind pediatric feeding disorder, I kind of want to outline what we're talking about. When we say pediatric feeding disorder, could you kind of give us a a quick outline, uh, give us a little framework for the conversation? Pediatric feeding disorder is when a child is not able to consume what he or she needs orally, and it causes one of four problems. A medical problem, it is associated with a skill-related problem, it causes nutritional issues, or is associated with behavioral or psychological concerns. It tends to occur in very young children, but this does not mean that it cannot be seen in, in older children as well. Can you talk to me about the importance of proper identification and referrals? Mindy, is that something you could speak to? In terms of referring children for pediatric feeding disorders, SLP, Mindy Aldinger. Often when they are infants or toddlers making those transitions from a bottle to other textures of foods, smooth purees or potentially chewable solids and then regular table foods, we start to see that they aren't making those progressions. And so often kids will be seen by a speech pathologist or in other areas of the country, they might be seen by an occupational therapist to assess their skill function and what might be going wrong in terms of why they aren't progressing like we would expect them to for a child of their age. Right. Has the perception of pediatric feeding disorder changed over time? 
Sure. Absolutely. The perception has changed over time in addition to the awareness. Dietitian Mary Beth Fueling. Over the last several years, by helping people understand what pediatric feeding disorder is and the importance of looking at all four areas of nutrition, medical skill, and behavioral problems, it's helping these kids get the care they need and hopefully identify the problem sooner so that their problem can be resolved sooner as well. You've sort of alluded here to the different things that are at stake for each discipline and the reason why teamwork is critical for the outcomes. Andrea, is there a child that you might have in mind or a story that you could present that we could see how each person might bring their expertise to the table? Sure. I have lots of patients. Pediatric psychologist Andrea Bogatka. But in general, a pediatric psychologist is going to be able to help a child with a pediatric feeding disorder by exposing them to more variety of foods in a positive way to develop a positive relationship with new foods and decrease any anxiety or resistance the child might have to trying new foods. And we do this in a systematic way with using a lot of praise, positive attention, incentives such as stickers or prizes after if they're completing their mealtime goals. So it's really working with the child and trying to develop those positive behaviors within feeding to gradually expand their diet in terms of variety and or volume of foods in just a way that the child can be successful in the clinic and then also generalize it to the home by coaching the parents. We're going to talk a lot about the role of the parents and how family is important to this conversation in a second. But I was hoping, Mindy, would you mind kind of, from an SLP, how are you collaborating? What are the things that you're focusing on that are different? Yeah, so my primary focus is keeping kids safe while they're either swallowing their food, swallowing their liquids, or progressing in terms of texture with chewable solids. I'm looking to make sure that the size of the food, the bites that they're eating is appropriate and making progress with children in therapy sessions based on their ability to have successful meals, but also challenge them so that they're moving forward and then giving parents an equivalent of practice and home programming to do at home. I lean on the behavior psychologists on our team to guide me when I am running into roadblocks with kids having difficulties accepting bites or lots of refusal of foods or really stuck with maybe certain types of foods and resistant to expanding their variety. And so that's how the two of us might work together in a session or in separate sessions with the same patient. Mary Beth, as a dietitian, what are you thinking about? Well, thanks for asking. I think I would love to introduce the idea that when a new patient comes to our clinic, all of the domains are meeting with the family and all of us are working together to collaborate to identify what our first round of assessment is for the situation for that child and their family. And then with that, we can determine what the priorities are for the first line of treatment and care. And then as we see them back for their follow-up, we're customizing each of the different disciplines in how we're providing care and providing treatment. 
that means that as a dietitian, I'm very concerned to assess a child to determine have they been growing well? Do they have malnutrition? Are they missing out on any of the major nutrients in their diet like fat or protein? Are they missing out on any micronutrients, calcium, iron? And are they relying on supplemental nutrition like tube feedings or high-calorie beverages and oral supplements in order to meet their nutrition needs? So it's really important that children are nourished before we start into too much of some of the other interventions and treatment because they need to grow first and foremost. And then as we can work on that feeding problem, if they're well-nourished, they can learn in those changes better. I'd like to put all of this together. And the classic example of a child where we collaborate, each of us, is a child with eosinophilic esophagitis. This is a condition with the esophagus that we'll hear more about in the second half of this episode when the team gives an in-depth look at how they collaborate to meet the child's needs. But for now, Praveen offers an overview of the collaborative process. Let's say the child is two or three years old and has very limited dietary variety and is growing poorly. The child comes in, the parents are convinced that the child has a behavioral feeding disorder, and then we do an endoscopy and find out that the child has eosinophilic esophagitis. Then I would be responsible for starting therapy, and once we have a pretty good indication that the eosinophilic esophagitis is under control, then the rest of the team kind of takes over, if you will. It's not that they're not involved before that, but these children can have skill deficits. So somebody like Mindy would be helping them. They tend to be malnourished and not eating the right things. So we'd have Mary Beth working with them on what they need to be eating. And then finally, to get them to expand their diet, both Mindy and Andrea would together to get this child to where we need him to be. That would be kind of like a typical team setting. And that's what tends to happen. It's interesting because it's teamwork on your side, but it's also teamwork between the parent and the child, right? Families are critical to this. And I think mealtime is so often associated with families, especially at an early age. I can imagine that if there's challenges there, it could be emotionally challenging for parents to talk about. Uh, Do you find that to be the case? Yes. Oftentimes the parents are very stressed when they come to us they can be emotional, crying. Sometimes they don't want to talk in front of their child about it because they're trying to keep things positive and not make the kid feel bad. But there's a lot of stress within the family, regardless of if there's behavior problems, there's psychosocial results from the child's feeding difficulties. And so how do you go about talking about these issues with parents? Are there any strategies? Well, I think the biggest thing is we talk to them about what is their goal? What would they like to see with their child's feeding? In addition to maybe things that we want to work on, we really try to meet them where they're at in terms of what is their goal? What do they want to really improve or focus on with the feeding and what is doable for the family? So we might have long-term goals, but that's not doable at this moment. So we just try to have them focus on the short term, the present, what can we make little changes with to help improve both their mental health and behavior towards the child as well as the child's feeding. You say their mental health, you're talking about often the parents. 
the parent's mental health in terms of how stressful feeding can be, it can cause anxiety or depression in parents, but it also doesn't have to get that far. It's still a very, it's a very distressing thing when a parent doesn't feel like they can feed their child or that their child's not feeding well. They often take that as an insult to themselves, like they're not doing something they need to do because one of the primary things that parents do to take care of their children is make sure they're nourished and fed. It oftentimes becomes very shaming or guiltful thing for for parents to admit that their child is not eating well or thriving or growing or that there's something wrong. Does that ever lead to delay of addressing the issue? Yes, potentially it could. Some parents may not seek help right away. Oftentimes we find that families mention things to the pediatrician and it's kind of not seen as a big deal as long as the child's growing and there's no like outward signs of difficulties that the child's having with feeding. So parents sometimes say things and seek help for a while, but it takes a long time for them to get to us because the child really has to be not growing, not nourished or having developmental issues that then brings the attention to maybe we need to get this addressed. If I could add to that, I think there needs to be more recognition of pediatric feeding disorder at all levels among primary care providers. But then we also need skill-based specialists, both speech-language pathologists and occupational therapists who are able to work with these children and help them. Teams like ours don't exist everywhere, and it is wrong to think that every child with a pediatric feeding disorder requires a team with all four. Many of these children, if there are interventions in the community that can be put in early on after early recognition, would probably do much better. But some children absolutely need a team and somebody to look at them in all four dimensions. So we need to think about both ends. In the community, we need more people who are are able to recognize it and help these children early. And we also need certain teams who can help the children with the most struggles, if you will. If you're in the community, how do you make those connections? Is it just picking up the phone? I would think so. I think if you are a primary care provider, you need to find your own little network or two or three people who can help you with these children. And you also need to have a team that you can refer your most difficult patients to. Yeah, I think with community providers as a speech-language pathologist, you can work in different variety of settings and not all speech-language pathologists focus on feeding too, which people generally don't realize. So there are people that we would be comfortable referring a child to, to work on skill-based feeding of pediatric feeding disorder and know that this child would be getting the best care and making progress as best as they can. But that provider should also know when it's time to refer to a multidisciplinary team like we have. I've worked on both sides of this, both in the community and here at Children's Hospital. And frequently when I was treating children and working on their skills to be able to progress their diet or get them eating more of their percent of food orally versus getting it via a tube feeding. If I was stuck and felt like a child wasn't making progress, I knew that the resource in our community was to send them to this multidisciplinary feeding team to be able to better assess the needs of the child. It doesn't mean that the team 
fully needed to keep that patient and I could still continue to see them for ongoing therapy, but the team definitely helped to guide how to achieve the goals that both the parents and then myself as a provider, speech pathologist, was working towards with that parent and child. Looking for more suggestions for reaching collaborators in your community? Mary Beth suggests using national organizations to find dietitians and collaborators in your area. Still, Praveen says we need more skill-based clinicians focused on pediatric feeding disorder and encourages early career speech-language pathologists to consider focusing on the disorder. Recapping the first half of our conversation, pediatric feeding disorder sometimes requires a team approach to address it. Just who is on that team is going to vary for each child. How accessible other members of that team are can vary depending upon what setting you're in. Still, our guests encourage you to reach collaborators even if they're not in your immediate setting. The other thing guests emphasize in this conversation is the importance of including families in the plan of care. Families play a role in getting to the desired outcomes. We're going to take a break. When we come back, the team addresses what happens when they disagree, and they run through an example of how their team-based approach would work in practice. Support for Asha Voices comes from ASHA's online conference, Controversies and Consensus in Dysphagia Management. From March 9th to the 21st, this continuing education opportunity will explore different perspectives on critical issues in dysphagia management. You can earn up to 2.3 ASHA CEUs, save $100 when you register by February 16th. Learn more at on.asha.org slash dysphagia22. I want to talk a little bit more just about teamwork conceptually at its best, or maybe when it's easiest, we're all showing up for each other and covering gaps in our respective expertise. But when expertise overlaps, that can sometimes maybe cause tension. Do you ever encounter situations that make you feel maybe a bit territorial? And and how do you as a team work through those moments? I think many of us have been doing this for quite a while. We are pretty good in communicating with each other and getting what we think is best for the child. We have weekly staffing meetings where we discuss our most challenging patients and try to come to a consensus. I think children get better care because because we are a team. I wouldn't say there are never any disagreements. The other really important thing is we learn from each other. I've learned a bit of pediatric psychology, some skill-based stuff. I did have some nutrition expertise already, but we all learn from each other and we get better at providing care for children as a team. Yeah. Disagreements can sometimes lead to better outcomes too, I would think. Right. And I think oftentimes it's not even disagreements. It's more challenging each other to talk through the situation and to ask those key questions to ensure that we're all thinking about all the different scenarios and all the different opportunities for that particular situation to make sure it can be the best that it can be. And my advice to someone just getting into working with a team group for pediatric feeding disorder is to learn to help everyone on the team be as open and honest and transparent as they possibly can be and to provide a safe environment so that each of the staff members can share what they're thinking in a way that won't be judged or felt to make feel bad if they ask something that someone thinks they should have already known, but to really be in a learning educational situation each and every day that you're working with each other, assuming good intent for each other. 
I would agree with what Mary Beth has to say. And I think we build relationships with each other and as a team so that we trust each other's expertise and knowledge and feedback. So I think we work really well together in terms of we each try to do our own piece for the patient and have the best intentions in mind for the patient. But then we have more discussions. There's not a lot of disagreements. It's more discussion about, okay, who's the primary provider for this patient that this patient needs at this time? Or should we treat together, Mindy, or should we treat separate? Um, So we really try to collaborate with all the disciplines to see what the patient most needs and at each particular time. And then we do reevaluate every three to four months, we get together with the speech and language pathologist, psychologists, and dietitians, see the patients to really regroup and say, okay, the patient's been doing therapy with psych or speech or co-treatment. Now, should we continue that? Or do we need to go a different direction with this patient based on how things have been going? I think keeping the open lines of communication and having a really good relationship with your teammates is really essential, as well as building that relationship with the family, because the family helps to decide how things are going to go as well and what needs to happen. And I would agree on that in terms of our teamwork. And I also think that we, because we've seen lots of different patients together, we're comfortable with myself as a speech pathologist suggesting to Andrea during an evaluation or in a discussion like, oh, have you thought about this? And we don't take that as I'm disrespecting her like she's not doing her job. It's just I'm trying to also make the best plan for this patient, this new patient that we have, and want to make sure we're not missing anything that might be helpful. So I think we work together to make strategies that we've used in the past and want to, oh, do you think this would work with this patient? Or do you think this parent would want to participate, you know, in this type of session? And we're very flexible with each other and appreciate, at least I appreciate that when people ask me questions about thinking about things, if a child hasn't developed certain skills or even speech and language stuff that they might be picking up on. And because I am screening for those things too, if the child's not talking enough or if their voice sounds different and they might need intervention and other areas too. I think it's really good how Mindy has stated that, you know, when you go around the country and educate people about working in a team, treating a pediatric feeding disorder, you talk about staying within your scope of practice. And we all have coached new people to this field that you want to work within your scope of practice. And so for any of the listeners, we want to encourage working within the scope of practice, but we absolutely have to ask the questions about the other disciplines in order for it to all tie together. Asking the questions isn't working outside of your scope of practice, but instead it's really collaborating with your partners to help pull everything together and make the best situation and care that you can provide for a child. Well, I'm wondering if briefly, because it sounds to me what I'm hearing is you can reach better outcomes when you work together. That's kind of the gist of what we're talking about today. And so I'm wondering if briefly, Praveen, if you might give us a quick example of a child that you might see and that you think we're going to need our team to work together to meet this child's needs. Can you give us a quick example? And maybe we'll run through a couple things that, that each of you might be thinking about and questions you might have for each other, just as a little example. I think I'm going to go back to my child with eosinophilic esophagitis. Let's say he's about three years old. 
Could you give us a quick explanation of what that is? So eosinophilic esophagitis is a problem in the esophagus that is quite closely allied with asthma and food allergies. We see young children with eosinophilic esophagitis who don't eat very well. So they have a pediatric feeding disorder. Many of these children also have underlying skill deficits and they have nutritional problems because their diets are not very varied. So when they come to the team, we first have to decide whether this child likely has eosinophilic esophagitis and whether I should do an endoscopy before anybody else provides any kind of therapy while we're trying to address the nutritional issues. Our next um, would be to obtain a lot more information about their history, especially kind of what their feeding and nutrition history has been. And as a dietitian, that helps me solidify a little bit more of what some of the nutrition risks and problems might have been over time. And then as we get that history, then we can transition into what is the child currently eating and drinking at this moment in time? And as we obtain that information, it is helping all three of the disciplines learn more about what is happening for that particular situation. And from a nutrition perspective, it might seem obvious, but it helps us understand is the child getting in enough calories, enough protein? Are they getting in the right amount of calcium to build strong bones? You know, we're looking at a variety of different nutrients, including fluid and fiber, to ensure that they are taking in what they need. And at the same time, we're looking at the growth history and the current weight and height to assess whether or not they are growing well and if they're well-nourished. And based off of that information, it can help drive what some of the nutrition recommendations will be for the next step. And as I share that with the other two disciplines, with Andrea and Mindy, that helps them with their next steps as well. Andrea and Mindy, what are you hearing? Yeah. After the dietitian the, would go through some nutritional questions, his feeding history questions, I might follow up with some additional feeding questions. My biggest thing, and sometimes as a speech pathologist focusing on feeding, we're looking at what's the current problem, but I can look back in a feeding history and identify small red flags or big red flags that have happened since this child was an infant that are just compounding what the current pediatric feeding disorder might be at this time. So I'm definitely looking in depth at that. In addition, I want to know how they're feeding skills, how they're chewing, how they're swallowing, what bite size, like I said before, in terms of food they're taking and figure out where they're at in terms of their skills to determine, are they okay with and safe for chewing and swallowing the foods that they're eating? Do we need to make modifications to their diet? Do they need to increase one type of food? Often it might be smooth foods if they're not chewing very efficiently. Are they spitting out a lot of foods because they don't have the chewing skills? And so we might be looking at that and guiding the parents into why chewing foods and spitting them out isn't the best strategy that we're looking at to make progress with this child going forward. And Andrea? 
So I get a lot of information by the time it's my turn at the initial evaluation, which is great. So I really just finish up by focusing on how long are meal times because that's a big indicator how stressful it is for the family or how out of the norm it is. And then really just is the child self-feeding, where are they sitting or are they walking around with food while eating to just kind of get a picture of the meal time schedule and structure in addition to what Mary Beth gets from the 24-hour feeding recall. And then I'm looking at what does the patient's behaviors look like with eating and how is the family responding to those behaviors? Because those are the things we're going to be focusing on. If there are negative feeding behaviors, we're going to target those negative feeding behaviors to try to bring out positive feeding behaviors and decrease those negative feeding behaviors. And that is going to be done by changing how the family is responding to the negative feeding behaviors and positive feeding behaviors. So it's really just kind of getting an idea of what we need to focus on in terms of the behaviors and how we need to work with family on adjusting their responses so that we can get more positive feeding behaviors instead of more negative. And Praveen, what are the outcomes that you're ultimately looking for? In this particular patient, we are looking for well-treated eosinophilic esophagitis. There's a variety of ways in which we do it. And then we are looking at a child ultimately eating the things that another child of his or her age would be able to do. We are looking for age-appropriate feeding. That's one. The second thing is we are looking for good nutrition status. The third thing is uh, we are looking for pleasant meal times, and fourth thing is that the eosinophilic esophagitis is well treated. So these are the things that we're looking for in this particular child. I'm wondering, is there anything else that this team wants to share about pediatric feeding disorder? From my perspective, it is incredibly common at this point, about one in... 25 to 1 in 35 children in the U.S. has it. It is more common than autism at this point. It requires more people to be thinking about it. We want people in the community to be thinking about it and acting on it. The earlier the earlier these children get attended to, the better the outcomes are likely to be. And it sounds like the outcomes there, from what you mentioned earlier, Andrea, those outcomes are not just for the children, but for the whole family. Right. I was going to actually add to what Dr. Godet said, and I really feel for families when they've been dealing with these difficulties for a long time, and maybe they're not heard when they voice these concerns and they try to be an advocate for their child. So gut instinct, if parents feel that this feeding difficulties their child is having is above and beyond what would be typical for a child that age and that developmental level, I think they should keep advocating and keep searching for resources in their area so that they can get the help that they need because it does affect the whole family, not just the child. Thank you to all of you for giving me some of your time this afternoon. I appreciate it. Thank you Thank for having you. us. Thank you. For more on pediatric feeding disorder, look to the pages of the ASHA Leader magazine. The December 2021 issue features an article about the teamwork required to help a child transition away from tube-based feeding. And the October 2021 issue includes an overview of new diagnosis codes for pediatric feeding disorder. Find a link to the articles on the blog post for this episode at on.asha.org podcast. And an article in the March-April issue of the ASHA Leader addresses the new diagnostic code for pediatric feeding disorder and how the code may help support reimbursement for services.
I want to thank our guests who came together quickly to make this conversation happen. Also, many thanks to Becky Dolan from the American Academy of Pediatrics. Becky provided important background information and introduced me to the team in Wisconsin. Also, many thanks to Jacqueline Peterson, CEO of the nonprofit advocacy group Feeding Matters and Feeding Matters' Kyler Romeo. Both Jacqueline and Kyler took the time to discuss this important subject with me, and they went above and beyond in providing me information. Thank you both. ASHA Voices is produced by the American Speech-Language Hearing Association and comes from the team behind the ASHA Leader magazine. Support for ASHA Voices comes from ASHA's online conference, Controversies and Consensus in Dysphagia Management, and it begins March 9th. Save $100 when you register by February 16th. Learn more at on.asha.org dysphagia22. I'm J.D. Gray, and this is ASHA Voices.